up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm one of your hosts, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nat McGee. Hello, Ben. How's it going? I'm doing great. We are recording another episode of the podcast, and I'm loving it. I'm fucking loving it. It's been a blast. So, Nat, for those who are just tuning in for the first time, tell our listeners what the premise of the podcast is. Well, Back to the Movies is a movie rewind podcast where we are going back to a specific year and just trying to relive the year a little bit and talk about the biggest movies of the year, the smallest movies of the year, some great ones, and maybe even some really bad ones. And the year that we're covering is 30 years ago, 1990, which happens to be the year that Ben and I were both born. I know we've just passed my birthday. Yours is coming up in short order. How are you feeling about the last month of being 29? I mean, it's it's all been fucked for a long time, so 30 <laughs> is not a big deal anymore. All right, so today's movie, we are still starting in the spring of 1990, right? Part of the premise is that we're going to go through these in roughly chronological order. And so we did a few movies that came out in March, but now we are jumping back to the very start of the year, to January 1990, for the film Tremors. Yeah, Tremors. Now, I actually think this isn't really a cheat. I think this is fine because Tremors, as we'll talk about at the end of the episode, was a huge bomb. Nobody Mm. saw it until it came out at home video a few months later, and that's when it became the cult phenomenon it is today. So the fact that we're covering it a few months late actually kind of tracks the the trajectory of the movie. That's very poetic. (laughs) That won't work as well when we do some other movies from earlier in the year, but... At least you'll, for you'll find okay. a way you'll figure it out. You'll figure out a way to weave together a beautiful tapestry. I'm sure. So this was your first time seeing it, right? This was my first time seeing it. It's another one that I've known of my whole life. I feel like that's going to be, well, actually that's not going to be a lot of these movies. Some of them I've never heard of before we started this project. Um, but this was one that always was there and I never investigated. I gotta be honest. I am not a big monster movie person. I don't seek them out usually and tremors was actually one that i was sort of i don't know what happened but i was subconsciously afraid of it i think i thought it was scary those monsters scared the bejesus (laughs) out of me do you not like horror movies generally or is it specifically monster movies no i like horror movies i'm just not at that level where i want to consume lots and lots of them if a good one comes along then i'm totally down it's just not something that really speaks to me So I'm not adamantly trying to see a lot of them. So this one was one of those where I knew about it, but it's, it it was just something I never took the time to see and also freaked me out a little bit. Sure. Well, so I was in the opposite boat. I I love a good monster movie. I love a B movie. I've seen Tremors many times before this. Mm. Um, And so it was when we were going over the list of movies from the year 1990, this one was high up on my list of movies I really wanted to cover if we could figure out how to fit it in the schedule. Um, it turns out we're fitting everything in the schedule, so oh, yeah. great. Oh, yeah. We're going hard. I'm, I I did enjoy it, though. Let's Shall we begin? That's good. I mean, the, the first movie's so enjoyable. It's really, its greatest strength is how easy it is to watch and like this movie. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> which is a really bad critical interpretation, but that is what it is. It's a fun movie to watch and you kind of fall in love with it from the beginning. It's got a really easygoing vibe at first and ratches up the intensity, but never lets go of the fun and exciting element. So I think I first saw this movie when I was probably in high school 
when I, I first discovered my love of movies, I became a bit of like a movie omnivore. I would watch anything I could get my hands on. Mm. And they had a copy of Tremors at the library of all places in their little uh, DVD shelf in the, you know, whatever this is, 2004, 2005. And that would have been the first time I picked it up. Definitely watched it by myself, probably late one evening when my parents were out at a rehearsal for something or my brothers were doing some extracurriculars. I was sitting at home watching a cheesy monster movie. <laughs> and uh, ever since then, you know, it's one of those, it's like a comfort food movie for me. It's okay. in the realm of Ghostbusters or, or Jurassic Park or something that I'll put on when I'm not feeling great. Or, or when it's rainy outside, because I know it's just going to be a great time. <laughs> well, that's so nice. That's that's amazing. I'm glad for that. So let's get into the production history a little bit of this film, because uh, despite the fact that the movie is pretty popular today, it really had a troubled history. It's kind of a, a, a scrappy little movie that could. And I think all that stuff's really, really interesting. What you have in this movie is the brainchild of this writing duo, S.S. Wilson and Brent Maddock, who hit it big with Short Circuit a few years earlier. The um, Number five is alive. Kid robot adventure right? movie. Exactly. Yeah, Johnny Five. Johnny Five. Oh and then God. Tremors is basically their bread and butter from then on out, Tremors and its sequels. And if you listen to these guys talk about this movie, they love the world that they created and the characters that they created to the point that they have developed this quite complex mythology surrounding all of it. Oh God, really? Well, if you, the sequels like go back into history, we meet like the ancestors of the people of perfection. And yeah, it's, <laughs> there's been five Tremors movies. Like they go some weird places. I saw the trailer for the new Kevin Bacon pilot that didn't go anywhere. He's back and he is trying to relive the glory days, basically. That's is the whole Finn conflict. Is Carter back with him? No, it's just Kevin Bacon. What's his name? Uh, Valentine McKee. Valentine. Yeah, so just so Valentine no is there. Bass and there's no Rhonda LeBac either. No, mm. uh, nobody. Or the, the um, survivalist, I didn't see him either. It was just Kevin and then a bunch of jerks. And <laughs> all CGI... But they were like, you're just trying to relive the glory days. And they're showing like newspaper articles from sure. back then. And he's like wistfully looking at them. But I bet that is of a piece with this whole universe they built. Because, I mean, that's what this was the work that these writers did. So they've got this screenplay, which at the time had many names, but uh, um, infamously was going by Land Sharks, even though that was a highly lampooned sketch on SNL at the time. Uh, and it's picked up by Gail Ann Hurd, who is a really prominent Hollywood producer. You may know her from James Cameron's early films. She did Terminator, Aliens, Abyss. She was even married to him during the production of a lot of those movies. So she was kind of a heavyweight. She sees this little scrappy monster movie and puts her name behind it, and that's what gets it off the ground. But even with it in production, there was never a lot of faith in the final product. And you can see that in the way the studio kind of pushes it to a January release. They don't really market it. And the movie's a failure. It got delayed. It was supposed to come out in the in September or October 1989, I think. And October would have been but a fine time. But then they pushed it. They pushed it to January, which was like the dumping exactly. ground. And I was reading that the director also partially blamed the terrible trailer which I watched and is very terrible. <laughs> very bad trailer, even for the 90s. It was painful to get through two minutes of it. So I feel for the guy because this is the type of movie that needs a good trailer, and it just 
didn't get that. So how are you going to get people to come see it if the trailer sucks and there's there's not a lot of I know, and it, it looks like such a disposable movie from the outside. A lot of its charms are in the personalities of the characters, in how lovingly it sketches the little town of perfection. And that stuff's hard to play in two minutes. Yeah. Because, frankly, the set pieces are fine. They're not great. They, they're functional. They're not highly memorable. They're certainly not very cinematic. And so I can't imagine how you would cut them into a trailer in a way that would get people excited to see what was going on. I mean, I, I don't want to talk about the trailer too much, but basically it boils down to making a joke out of the two main characters, which the movie does, but with a lot of charm. But obviously in a trailer to do that makes it look like it's a parody sure. movie. So, so that combined with... There's monsters coming. Like, it just looked like crap. It looked like a crappy <laughs> movie. When it's really like a really well-constructed middle-budget monster movie with awesome effects and yeah. pretty pretty cool Well, you, you just mentioned the director, too, uh, Ron Underwood. Uh, have you seen any of his other movies? I mean, he made a couple of big ones. City Slickers, Mighty Joe Young. Big fan of City Slickers right here. <laughs> Love me some City Slickers. That is a great movie. It's a good movie. I don't. I don't know if I call it. Wait, you just changed what I said. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. Hey, man, City Slicker. It's New Yorkers going to the desert. I, I love it. I lived it. Where was the City Slickers Tremors crossover? Is what I want to know. I don't know. It's the it's the movie that never happened. City Slickers was a huge hit, right? So so good for him. He he came out of Tremors and learned all about desert photography, I guess. And then, uh, you know, went on to make city slickers, just more desert stuff. Well, so he makes a few short films. Tremors is his first narrative feature as a director. Pretty solid start. Uh, he falls up with city slickers. Fantastic. Uh, then there's a couple forgettable ones, Heart and Souls, Speechless, which I haven't seen either. Then Mighty Joe Young, the sort of a uh, big gorilla King Kong oh, yeah. but for families. And then he shits the bed and he makes oh, no. the infamous Adventures of Pluto Nash. The movie that oh, basically wow. kills Eddie Murphy's career, kills his career. Yeah. He's basically directed no films since then, just TV. What TV has he directed? Like... Good TV? He's or? directed everything from Monk to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to Castle to Grey's Anatomy. I mean, he works steadily, which is good because you can see from this movie, he's, he's there's definitely talent there. And it feels like his career was the career of a potentially, you know, solid journeyman director that got cut short by one abominable film. Damn. Pluto took him down. <laughs> I mean, as That's well as shit. Have you ever seen that movie? I haven't, no. It is atrocious. Oh, uh, I would put it up with well, Wild Wild West as like one of like the worst mistakes blockbuster Hollywood ever made. Well, speaking of Wild Wild West, ah, the writers of this movie wrote Wild right, Wild West. That's really their only other big credit outside of Short Circuit and Tremors. And all the Tremors right. sequels. So there's another career killer, it looks like. <laughs> so yeah, be careful out there, so everybody. Then, yeah, their last non-Tremors film was a... Uh, was Wild Wild The question West. I suppose Ooh. we should ask, is Tremors a happy accident? Or were their later films just, you know, hubris, terrible mistakes? Hey, you know, I think about this a lot. You never know if a movie is going to be bad. I always imagine studio filmmakers, and every movie probably starts with, oh, this is going to be huge. This is going to be a great movie. <laughs> and then slowly but surely, you start... And maybe it's during production. Yeah, this maybe movie it's during is going the to editing. have a giant mechanical spider. How can it fail? <laughs> yeah, it's like that kind of thing. Where it's like, oh, 
okay, Mechanical Spider, interesting. That could be really cool. Like, maybe this will be the most iconic movie moment for a generation. <laughs> I don't know. When the Mechanical Spider came out. And then you start you start seeing early special effects, and you're like, oh, uh-oh. And then it's the premiere, and you're everyone's smiling, and, oh, it's, it's the best movie of the year, huh? And then it's like, uh, no. So that's just an interesting idea to me that, like, someone's slowly realizing that <laughs> whatever they're working on is terrible and it's a huge joke and they get shamed. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's the classic. It's going to start with like, Oh, I have a great idea. Why would you do it? Maybe some movies are just completely cynical from the beginning yeah. and they know it's garbage. Like, well, I don't it's, know. It's like the porno movies the classic, and shit like that. Uh, uh, yes, man arc, you know, where they start off and they're facing all these challenges and it forces them to be creative and they're being checked on their worst ideas by other people around them who, uh, because they don't have the clout to overrule them. And then as they garner success, they are able to indulge in their worst impulses. They're no longer challenged creatively. And the result is. Adventures of Pluto Nash. Well, you also look at the filmography for these guys. I'm, I'm specifically attacking the writers right now. Sure. So that's Wilson and Maddock. They have one movie, one other movie in 90. So they're hot. And then 93, they have a movie, Heart and Souls. And then again, with Ron Underwood. back to the silo. Tremors 2. It's the same writers are like, yeah, we'll do Tremors 2. Screw it. So like, I'm not accusing these guys of being lazy, but maybe they were just out of ideas. I don't know. I'm What's be the deal? I think that, and we, we mentioned this briefly already, and we'll talk about it a lot more as we get into the plot of the movie, but I think they really love the characters that they created for this film. They I think love they really Tremors. love the world they created, and I think they were pretty happy to return to it. Mm, interesting. Should we get into it? Uh, yes, we should. Right off the bat, we get introduced to our two main characters. It's a great place to start because these two guys are the heart and soul of the film, to borrow a yep. title from Maddock and Wilson. Um, they are really the only two established actors in the movie, and they are both fantastic, as I think you'll likely agree. So this is Kevin Bacon yeah. as Val Valentine McKee, and Fred Ward as Earl Bassett. And I love this intro right mm -hmm. off the bat. We get Kevin Bacon peeing off the side of the cliff, because the man's got no cares in the world, but doesn't even have a toilet to call his own. Very strange intro for a monster movie, I gotta say. If Jaws is your Bible, and this movie is definitely stealing some stuff from Jaws. Yeah, like the poster. <laughs> no question about that. So if Jaws is your Bible, then... It would expect to start the movie with that dude getting sucked under. Right. Like, let's start it off with a bang. But this, they're just fully like, no, we love our characters. Let's start with these guys. And it's super goofy. And if you didn't know what this movie was, other than like the opening moment of the title, you would think this is like a goofy comedy for the first five minutes. I mean, it's really like there's no um, ominous music. There's no like rumbles or anything. It's just like. Here's two guys in the desert. What's going to happen? They're going on a road trip. I, maybe it's a strength because when things start going haywire, it's, it feels a little weird. It's not those those very cliche beats the, that yeah, have like the rote structure that every monster movie right. follows. Exactly. All right, let's start with Bacon because he's definitely the biggest star in the film. Um, and he is the, the only name above the title on the poster. You know, he, he was the thing that they tried to sell it on. Uh, do you like Bacon in this movie? I do. 
I Do you like a little bacon over the top of the dish? I like bacon with eggs bacon over the Bacon on the salad, bacon yeah. on the egg sandwich. No, he's amazing. He's he's wonderful. He's such an interesting actor. He isn't really a leading man, but he always plays leading roles. He's like more of a character actor, and usually his roles are a little bit weirder and more esoteric. But he's also like had this career where he's done literally everything from monster movies to romantic dramas to television appearances like he's so hard to pin down what it is that makes kevin bacon a great actor yeah something i read that was interesting was after this movie and flatliners he decided to go out as more as a character actor so he was trying to be a leading man and obviously he had footloose and this but he i think he smartly kind of realized i think the quote is something like i knew that if I wanted to work with like a directors, I would have to not be the main guy because mm. I'm just not going to be that guy. So he definitely did a, a shift mid career from pursuing leading roles to just kind of taking whatever directors thought was good for him, which is like the cop in mystic river or I mean, a ton of the other next roles. Couple of years. He's got a small role in JFK, but it's a memorable one. He's great in a few good men, uh, Rob Reiner's film in 92. So you can see you can, that's the moment where he's like, screw it. I'm not going to be vain and like only try to go for leading man. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to work with guys like Rob Reiner or Oliver Stone. Or, uh, um, what do we got? We got Paul 13 coming up in a few years. Yep. Yep. So it's just like, he's, he's making a move. It's very calculated because mm-hmm. it's like that once upon a time in Hollywood, thing where Pacino's like you gotta take these roles or else you're not gonna be a leading man the public won't think of you as a leading man it's it's very true that's that's how it is but he is a weird leading man like you can't just slick stick him into any movie and it's gonna work I'll tell you the thing I was saying basically the entire time I was watching this movie was god Kevin Bacon is a weird looking dude yeah he's weird he looks like Chucky (laughs) he looks like an adult Chucky especially in this movie yeah, we, he, he's our, our, our intro to the world. He plays a little prank on his buddy, uh, Earl, played by Fred Ward. Fred Ward, legendary actor. Been in a ton of amazing films. Right. Another guy I feel like, well, and I shouldn't say another guy. He's a guy I feel like he's, who's sort of unjustly forgotten a little bit. Like he's kind of looked over these days. I mean, I I don't know who this guy is basically at all. I'm, I've seen him in movies, but I couldn't pick him out I mean, of a police lineup. In, like, in, I don't know this guy. Shortcuts. He's incredible in that film. I mean, he's just been around for ages. He's he's Joe Dirt's dad. That's where I remember him from. And I always kind of thought, I always kind of <laughs> thought in in Joe Dirt that that wasn't even him. I thought that was Fred Willard. I mean, I feel like he was just one of those hardworking actors who would take a role and he would deliver, and he just would show up in movie after movie. He was definitely a that guy during uh, those days. We'll be seeing him again um, in a few weeks with the movie Miami Blues. A couple years after this, he's in The Player. He plays the head of security at the studio who is really into single-shot takes into oneers, but only Touch of Evil. Right. See, I wouldn't remember him doing that. Like, that's a great moment that I remember, but I don't remember him. You know what I mean? Same for Shortcuts. Sure. Like, he's the guy who leaves the corpse in the, in the woods, but right. I don't remember it being him. And that's good. I mean, that's like he disappears into the roles and he's playing characters. You really couldn't say the same about Kevin Bacon, though. No, not at all. If he shows up, I'm like, oh, there's Kevin Bacon. Hello. What what do you think of of Fred Ward? He was wonderful. He's he's a good guy. I mean, the the character relationship is kind of interesting. 
<laughs> it's it's really hard to unpack. It's kind of a Doc and Marty thing going on. Yeah, here. it was, that's a good that's a good analogy. But I liked him a lot. I mean, he was he was sort of more of a plot mover, like bouncing stuff off of Kevin Bacon than anything else. Like he didn't have any character other than <laughs> his, his his objectives are to just make sure that Val has a good life. Yeah, it seems like. exactly. Uh, he had nothing else going on, which is fine for this type of movie. Um, but he was good. He gets totally overshadowed later on by another character. So I will say that in my previous viewing experiences, I'd always really gravitated towards Val because Kevin Bacon's pretty electric in this movie. He's very live wire, very high energy, and it's hard to ignore him. And basically every scene with one of these guys has both of them in it. But I've found myself when I was watching it for our recording uh, just a couple of days ago, I was giggling every time they cut to Fred Ward's face. And they <laughs> cut to his face a lot. He is the king of reaction yeah, shots. Yeah, his reactions are great. He's always got like a frown or a grimace or a smile. He's got a cigarette in his mouth. Yeah. And it became my favorite part of the movie was just seeing what his face would look like when they cut away to it. I feel like that's a major strength of this movie is that it's a monster movie, but it never forgets unlike or, or like red October, it never forgets to keep humanizing its characters. Like right. we're never just except for maybe the punk ass kid. We're, <laughs> no, we're never seeing characters that are one dimensional or sure. just total caricatures. Like it, it seems like everyone kind of has multiple things going on. This movie's got a lot of heart. It got, it has a lot of heart and that translates to little things like mm -hmm. the reaction shots. Like right. I'm not saying that the characters are, Dostoevsky characters, but there's little things that the actors can do that humanize the characters just as much as screenwriting. Totally. And I mean, it, we just joked about how Earl doesn't really seem to have any purpose except for to make sure Val leads a good and productive life. But the fact that Earl clearly loves Val very sort of like unselfishly and platonically is one of the things maybe that makes platonically them maybe platonically maybe platonically <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the things that makes their pairing so charming is that like they just like each other and and, right. and even when they have their little like you know their little couple fights over the septic uh, uh truck that that breaks open they still are doing it because they care about each other and this is going to sound really silly but it's it's so wonderful that these yeah. people are such nice people. And if you, if you look at like screenwriting 101 especially when you're trying to like quickly establish characters, I feel like it's an easy way out to just make people kind of antagonistic towards each other. Like that's so another direction drama. where yeah, it's like screw you Earl, like you're never looking out for me and then they, they can make that sort of the the through line of the movie is that okay, they're going to have to learn to work together because they were so mean to each other at the beginning and there's a begrudging respect at the end. But in this, they work their shit out in the first 10 minutes and then other things happen right. and they just love each other. Well, and you know, I was going to get to this a little bit later, but I think now's as good a time as any. The other thing that is so great about these characters is that they're very specific. They're very real. They're very lived in. These guys who, you know, are living as basically homeless handymen in this small, impoverished town are part of this cast of characters of all very unique people that nonetheless feel very human. Yeah. You know, we've got the, the hippy-dippy artist lady. We've got the survivalist couple. We've got the, you know, the Chinese market owner. Um, we've got the abandoned teenager and the girl with her pogo stick. And one of the theories I have about this film is it's not really a monster movie. Monster movies usually involve large populations mm. and 
monsters uh, threatening the greater society. And it's about organizations coming up to sol- with solutions to defeat them, whether it's the military or scientists. I thought this movie actually feels a lot more like a slasher film. Right. We're in an isolated location. We've got our small cast of characters and they get picked off one by one. Except unlike most slasher movies with their kind of cliche cast of bland, attractive teenagers, this slasher movie is populated with really interesting, diverse people. Mm-hmm. Totally. All right. So where do we go from here? So we meet Val and Earl. We get to see them for a while without any indication of the horrors to come. Just kind of doing their daily handyman routine. They meet a girl out in the middle of nowhere. This is the female lead of the film, Finn Carter, as Rhonda. And I'm pretty sure, sh- my research may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure she was only in this, basically. Basically. And I'm also pretty sure that she had some nepotism to get into this movie. I think she had a relation of some kind at the studio. I see. Well, both of those things track for me because I think she is the weakest part of the film by a significant margin. Um, she is okay in a few scenes as sort of this quirky, proto-manic pixie dream girl kind of thing, but I think her performance is bad. I think it's pretty bad. Yeah. When she's not like sort of just an object for uh, Val to chase after when she's supposed to be kind of doing her own thing, she just can't sell it. To, to circle back on my nepotism um, <laughs> research, I'm not trying to just shit on the entire cast and crew of this movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> A movie, to be fair, we like. Her father was the former United States State Department Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs, and her husband was Steven Weber. So I don't know. Whatever. She's also on TV shows. It just didn't take, I guess. There was one moment that she really got me. Uh, There's one line that I thought was hilarious, and I I liked her. What was that line? It was when they're all on the roof, and Kevin Bacon asks, what do you think it's trying to do now? And she just looks at him, and she's like, why do you keep asking me? (laughs) (laughs) You're right. No, you're right. She's just that line. A great delivery. Uh, yeah. But yeah, and then it's the ending is ridiculous where they just make out. Like, it's insane. Um, ah. But she's, I mean, she's fine. She's just as good as a lot of the other people. While we're doing this tour of the town, we're doing a lot of really great planting work for some payoffs later in the movie. I mean, we established a cliff literally in the first shot that will be the ultimate downfall of Stumpy, the last of the Graboids. We are establishing uh, Rhonda as the uh, seismologist who's tracking strange vibrations around the valley, which will then become helpful to us later to determine how many Graboids there are yep. and, and, and uh, how we how they hunt. We're establishing like the environment of the town. We get a great establishing shot where you can literally see like every, every building little piece in the town. And one thing I love is that the town has a population indicated 14 people. There are a total of 17 characters in this movie. Okay. Rhonda, the two road crew, and 14 other people that oh, we see. Oh, wow. So, I, I mean, like, little details like that are there. That's nice. I like that. I also want to mention, the. this is not setting up the monster situation, but uh, Val's idol, who he has many pictures of on his dash, or on his windshield visor thing, Tammy Lynn Baxter. Do you know who that is? I don't. I thought that was a made-up person for the movie. It's a made-up person for the movie. I thought, I was like, oh, that must be like a 90s country star or something. Because, like, who the hell (laughs) is Tammy Lynn Baxter? It's just some girl? Just someone he dated previously. 
See, I thought it was like, oh, he's only obsessed with like really hot girls that are only attainable in the media that don't even exist. But huh. she's just some real person. So I looked it up. I was like, oh, this will be this will be cool <laughs> on the podcast. I'll I'll have a factoid about it. like, oh, she was a country singer. No, she's no, not real. Right. This was this was great podcasting. <laughs> this is really interesting stuff. Our listeners would love to hear. Also, he's he's very mean to her. He's like immediately like she's disgusting. Just because she's got the nose thing. The zinc oxide Come on, on the nose. Get over it, that was, bro. That was some serious, like, oversized glasses shit right there. Yeah, that was bad. But yeah, I love how it establishes the entire town. And I also love that it takes the time to just establish what it's like to live in this town. It really yeah. got me thinking about 90s desert living with, like, no internet and no real... Even the phone lines get severed and that's it. Like, the communication to the outside world is gone and it's just one road in and out of the valley yeah it's amazing to me just that people are living out there in the middle of a valley just doing their thing in new york city yes i grew up in new york city the exact opposite of paradise perfection perfection sorry which i think is even better name than paradise yeah it is it's perfection i'm from vermont i i grew up in a reasonably small town um and certainly vermont is a pretty less populous area than new york city um so like this this Mm -hmm. stuff all felt very real to me even though it's heightened in you know the film world a lot of this stuff is recognizable for anyone who's lived in a small community where everyone knows everyone everyone has their own little niche that they perform this sense of sort of camaraderie where even though these people are very different and have different ideologies and different politics and different backgrounds the fact that they're all kind of stuck in this one place together means that there is a base level of respect that you you is essential to keeping the town alive Right. Nobody is antagonistic towards anyone else. They'll jab each other, um, but right. nobody has a grudge, which, would, again, it would be easy to do that. And then they overcome the grudge, and there's your dramatic crux of the movie. Like when you meet the, the Gummers, the survivalist couple, you're so worried that maybe they're going to be like racist towards uh, the, the right. shop owner, towards Victor Wong's character. But they're not. They're lovely people who just happen to be totally crazy. Yeah, exactly. I also wanted to mention before we get into like the crazy shenanigans, the cinematography was gorgeous and it reminded me a lot of Breaking Bad. Like, I feel like this was definitely a visual reference for Breaking Bad because there's just those really wide shots from far away where you're incorporating the sky and the mountains and the, the dirt. And like, it was just that color palette is awesome. And the way they shoot it on film Deserts it's not like are a, inherently cinematic because they're so wide yeah. and open. Like a forest is hard to shoot because it's all closed in and you don't have a long line of sight. But a desert is perfect for a widescreen cinematography. Just look out over the vista and see all the details. And also just that element of weirdness, like seeing a, a body in a tower from sure. really far away with a desert landscape around it or seeing a car buried underneath <sighs> sand. That's such a cool Like that image. kind of stuff is cool. I guess it sort of has to take place in a remote community, but it would be a different movie if if it was the woods and because you could do it anywhere as long as there's mountains that you can flee to. Do you ever watch the X-Files? I have not. No. There's a great episode where Mulder and Scully go up to a logging community up in the woods that are being attacked by these silk spinning insects. Um, that then like desiccate the people that they capture. They're like sort of like spider flies, but it's a very similar setup where we we've got a small, tightly knit community um, where people start getting picked off. But it feels where Tremors feels like this sort of alien landscape in the desert. That one's a lot more claustrophobic 
because the woods are all mm. around and it's hard to see where anything is or where the attacks might come from. Um, and I think one of the great things about Tremors, I mean, what makes the concept of the land shark of, of the underground monster so perfect is that you feel safe because you can see all around you, but that's not where the danger is coming from. Ah, yes, exactly. Yeah. And then it's just the, also the sound element. This is totally quiet place. Right. Ripped this off, man. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, it's, 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 it's classic Hollywood movie trope because it's so easy to indicate when a character is making sound and when they're not making sound, everything from uh, uh, like Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, you know, it's like it's yeah. such a perfect cinematic device, and this movie uses it to good effect. Exactly. So, uh, so what's next? I just want to quickly mention a couple of the characters since I think we meet them all pretty quickly here. I want to mention Walter Chang, the the shop owner played by Victor Wong, an actor I love because he was a regular collaborator with john carpenter he is fantastic in big trouble in little china one of my favorite performances in one of my favorite movies he plays egg shen uh sort of this it's going to sound offensive when i say but he's kind of this like mystic who owns a a, a tour company um and he aids jack burton in his quest uh, uh to take down all the you know the evil triad gang um that, that movie's a great movie and he's fantastic in it he then gets cast in a few other carpenter movies playing sort of less obvious casting choices he's really great in prince of darkness um he's an actor he didn't do a lot he was mostly doing stuff on stage as far as films go but every time he appears in a movie i love him he's got such a great face with that one eye um, sort of the Force Whitaker eye, where he's got one squinted eye yeah. and one one open eye. Um, he's got a great voice, um, this sort of like pinched voice that it's just everything about him is just like seared in my brain. I don't know the man, but I respected him in this film, and he uh, he did he a great job as the star. The worst owner. death in the movie by far. That was like brutal. the most painful. That was really to watch. brutal. It's the most drama. There's a lot of brutal deaths in this movie. Um, something interesting was that it was originally R. There was like 20 f bombs. Right. And they cut him out. You can tell, too. And it feels like you're watching a TV. You can yeah. tell. Yeah, but it, it, the directors also said they were happy with the fact that they made it PG-13. And honestly, I'm kind of happy with it, too. Yeah. Like, it made it feel a little more weirdly wholesome. It is. But those those kills are R-rated, sure. for sure. I mean, particularly Chang, where he's got, you know, all the tentacles, like, stabbed into his back, and they're wrapping around him, and dragging him down to the floor. Well, and he gets the nosebleed. That always bugs True. me out when... When there's bleeding in other areas <laughs> besides the wound, that's, that's you know, freaky to me. terrible stuff's going on inside. Um, exactly. And then although these characters are introduced uh, a little bit later, I think we can set them up up front, which are the Gummers, the, the survivalists. Reba. Reba McIntyre. Such an yeah. interesting role for her to take. Yeah, crazy. I love uh, Michael Gross, too, who, um, you know, was he's an actor who works, he's in a lot, a lot of television. I didn't realize this until I was researching this for the podcast, but he's in a great episode of parks and rec where they are shooting a catalog for their summer programs. And we're meeting all the previous directors of the parks department. And Michael gross plays a weed smoking hippie, like basically the opposite of his character in this movie. (laughs) He also went hard into the tremors universe. He became like the face of tremors. He was playing his own grandfather (laughs) in one of them. I saw that when they go old West, but I mean, they are the breakout characters because their contrast between like their hardcore survivalist ideology and how pleasant they are as people is like, 
Yeah, they're just a nice, happy married couple, but they have a little side hobby of hoarding weapons and survivalist tactics. And all that stuff is so matter-of-fact. Like, after they've been out hunting and they get back and, and Reba McIntyre dumps the, the, the used cartridges into the polisher, and, like, it's no big deal. It's just, like, a little detail about how they live their life. Yeah. It's just there's something really charming about it, about people who believe in things really strongly, even if those things seem strange. Yeah. It gets a little hard for me sometimes, especially in monster movies where you have a lot of characters that are being introduced and you don't know who's going to be important, especially you're watching it the first time. Is there a lot of foreshadowing? Like that conversation that they have in the store the first time around, it it was hard to track it later on. Like I kind of forgot what was said, but is there a lot of like foreshadowing of how crazy they are? I think in terms of like how many guns they have, because you never see right. their their actual stockpile until way later. Until the the graboid breaks into the bunker. Um, yeah, and it was a huge surprise for me. I was like, "Oh, they're really well, I legit." Think the movie and paces it well, where like you yeah. get the sense that like maybe these people take this stuff kind of seriously. We you get a few lines about how you know they moved to the valley because it was isolated. They're okay. going out on patrol. They give the rifles to uh, Val and Earl when they're going to try and ride their horses out of the valley. So all that stuff's happening before we've seen the extent of their mania. Right. Okay, cool. Because, yeah, I was kind of like, oh, okay, they're they're hardcore. And I was like, was the movie telling me this earlier? Or was, but I think if I watched it again, like you'd kind of see the I think it's definitely there. meant to be a punchline. You know, when the camera okay. pans over and all of a sudden there's just a wall of guns. Uh, I think that's uh, well, a punchline. Well, yeah, that that scene deserves a twenty minute conversation. <laughs> okay, so let's just get into our first uh, attack. So Val and Earl have had it. They're covered in shit, and they don't own anything. And Perfection is a stupid little town where they're never going to get ahead. So they decide that they're going to leave, pack up yep. their truck, um, and they they get drive out of there. on out of there. And a great little thing is that they make this big deal out of the, when they ask them to do one more job again. It's like a plot thing that it's easy. Keep them there. Just make them do one more job. They're greedy. But no, instead they make it a thing about them being like, we're leaving. We Can you believe we said no to her? Like they're really yeah, empowered. What did they say no to exactly? And it's just a, the, no, no. Some, I think, what's the, I can't remember. Free beer. You probably That's know. That's the selling point. Free beer. Free Great beer. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I just love that little, it's just little screenwriting things that make the movie kind of different. So they drive on out. Um, actually, I suppose they've seen the first body before this, which is the the guy up on the power lines. Yeah, they keep getting pulled back into the town because they literally find body after <laughs> body know, after it's, body. It's pretty funny, actually. Yeah, it, it's hilarious. Uh, but there's the guy. There's the the guy in the tr- in the thing, and then it's just like whatever. And then there's the guy underneath old friend. The, yeah, old the guy underneath. What is he under? A, a manhole or something? No, it's his hat. His hat, right? Yeah, they lift his hat, and he's Great and that reveal. was that was the big Jaws ripoff, hundred thousand percent. Sure, but it's fine. It scared me, so got the job done. Uh, and then there's the construction dudes, right? What I think the movie does quite well structurally is this sort of rising tension, this escalation of the threat the graboids place. The, uh, on on the on the villagers because we get little details you know first there's a guy dead because he's uh, didn't want to be on the ground but we're not sure what the deal is there and then the next guy we see get dragged underground and then when they drive back to the rock slide they get the snake stuck on their on their truck yeah um, and so we're just now we're like oh okay so is it like little 
ground snakes. You know, what is this thing here? Um, and then that's followed up by the attack on the doctor and his wife. Yeah. One of the most upsetting scenes in the movie. Yeah, they really set that up to be very upsetting. I think they did that so that you hate the monster. Sure. Like, the monster's evil. And this is great for a couple reasons. One, it's, like, genuinely scary when she's freaking out and, like, you realize there's no way for her to escape. When the car yeah. starts to sink. But that's also great escalation because we're learning, oh, no, these aren't just, like, little snake things. This thing is they big have enough power. to sink an entire car. Yeah, they're serious. Um, but that's a great set piece scene. Um, and very sad, very upsetting. The but, image of the car sinking into the ground and then of them uncovering the headlights later, those are that's just great, great imagery. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. It's so bizarre, but it's so it's it says everything. Yeah. So that after that moment, they're gearing up into like survival mode with with the whole the whole town starting to like figure things are really screwed, right? Right. This is when they uh uh I guess this is when they go to find when they go to find Rhonda? Yeah, they go to find... Well, yeah, there's they go to find Rhonda, but there's also a lot of, like, back-at-the-ranch kind of stuff where they are all sort of coordinating, and right. they get the horses, and they're like, we have we got a plan to go do this and that and this, and then they got to go... The survivalists give them guns and go out, and then they go to find Rhonda, and there's the first big fight situation. And the Rhonda scene is sort of the final piece of the monster escalation because she's the one who tells us there's not just one of these things. There's four of them. And we see it like it's full body for the first time. Right. And they kill it so they can like look at it without it. Should we talk about the uh, monster design? Yeah, totally. So it's, it's awesome. The creature effects were done by a, at the time, fledgling special effects company called uh, Amalgamated Dynamics, which has gone on to have a very, very successful run in Hollywood. You know, they're making movies today, doing special effects for movies today. And uh, they did Starship Troopers, right? Starship Troopers. Uh, but I mean, like these days, like they're doing things like the it movies. Oh, cool. So like, they're still, they're still a, a prominent player in the special effects world. And it's pretty easy to see why, because this is their first movie. They're working on a shoestring budget and the creature effects are great. Yeah. They do a very fine job of, of establishing the creatures. And then also like just scaring us and making them otherworldly and weird. So did you read anything about the original design for the creatures? No, I did not. Before they had the tentacle mouths, although there's some dispute over this because I guess the tentacles were in the screenplay, there was a design for the monsters where their jaws were covered by a retractable flap of skin uh, so that like when they were underground, they wouldn't get dirt in their mouths or whatever. Um, but that meant that when they would go to attack, the skin would pull back over the head oh. of the monster. And... Uh, it was Gail and Hurd who told them that, no, you cannot have gigantic penis monsters yeah, too phallic. In, in your movie. Yeah, no way. That's not uh, cool. But I think the final design is great. Like, they're they're kind of big and slug-like and sort of not, you know, very defined. They don't seem super functional, you know, with the mouth in the mouth. That's like a classic alien thing. Yeah, the mouth in the mouth. I was kind of like thinking about alien a lot. Yeah. And also just the little tentacle guys. Definitely shades of alien. Yeah. Uh, which is fine. Whatever. Yeah. If you're going to steal, steal from the best. I think the coolest thing about them is just the way they get around and how, like, they're kind of like this mole rat situation, right. like, going through tunnels and you can see it coming from a mile away. You can do the cool shots of, like, through the dirt. 
mm-hmm. which I'd love to know how they did that. Did when they it just like dives plexi- in the dirt that fell. Yeah, they must have put like plexiglass in front of a thin layer of dirt and just pushed through it. I don't know, uh, but it's amazing. But yeah, the, the monster designs are cool and definitely take the movie to the next level. If the monster designs weren't at the level they are, then this would be a much tougher movie to digest, I think. Yeah, and they're they're cheesy, but in a way that works for the film. Yeah. I mean, the whole movie is pretty cheesy. Yeah. In the best way possible, but it's all working together to form high-level cheese. <laughs> a fine a fine brie. A yeah. nice, soft, succulent cheese. Yeah. So I loved when, in that set piece, when they killed the first one by just having it run into an aqueduct. I thought that was great. <laughs> it's like, yeah, if it's going fast, it hits an aqueduct. And my favorite moment of this movie that really sold me on Kevin Bacon was after they realize it's dead. He delivers a very non-unique line that's in a million movies, but in a very unique way. He goes, fuck you. Like he just screams, fuck you in the, with like a U or an A in the fuck. And it's so funny. It's, and his face is just so ridiculous. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen, but yeah, it's, I just wanted to call that out because it's amazing. I always felt like that first death was kind of a cop-out. It works in the structure of the film because we need to learn a little bit more about how these things work. Um, Yeah. But the the thing sort of kills itself. I like that, though, because it it ties in with the theme of, like, they didn't have a plan. And they just got lucky. And it also just helps you see these monsters in a different way where it's like they're they're like subways just plowing through the ground and if they hit something hard enough they die like i i thought that was a cool way to take out the monster because what are they gonna they're overwhelmed they're not aware of what the hell is going on this is the first time they're really seeing this thing and it makes perfect sense that the only way they're going to defeat it in this instance is if there's a fluke so i i liked it the problem i have with it is that when we get to the sequence where they are trapped in the town, we begin to see that these things are also problem solvers, that they have some kind of intelligence. Yeah, but in this case, it didn't know there's an aqueduct. I mean, I think, yeah, if we start getting into logic shit, like it's, it's going to get very um, messy in here, but (laughs) I think that you can't apply logic to the movie about giant (laughs) slugs burrowing in the dirt of Nevada. From from a storytelling standpoint, it worked for me. It was surprising, and it was it was just an interesting way to kill off one of the monsters. And to your point of like the intelligence, like the smartest person in the world could get into a car accident. So I, I don't really see a problem with it. But we can agree to disagree, I guess. <laughs> so this, the 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 chase that ends with the death of the first graboid is followed up with the sequence on the boulders. Yes, the pole vaulting. This is when we introduce uh, Stumpy. Which I actually, I think it's a great little touch. Like, there's one that's special. It was the first one to attack them. They rip the arm off when they are driving the truck away. And from then on out, this sort of is our, 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 it's our graboid with some personality. It always helps to do that. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta give some personality. I'm trying to think of other movies where they do that. They, they they do do this a lot. Yeah. It's, I mean, Uh, it's, it's an easy shortcut, but I, I, I'm glad it's just one. You know, we yeah, they, they didn't each get each one a personality. The it's funny one, one, the crazy one. <laughs> that would be bad. I, I loved the pole vaulting sequence. Yeah. Not only like the lead up to it where they're just figuring it out. It's just more cool problem solving. Again, 
Another weird connection, I'm going to bring it up again, Breaking Bad. Like, Breaking Bad is a similar piece of desert entertainment where they will just spend a whole episode trying to figure out how to get off a rock or how to get out of an RV that's been, the battery has died. And I love this kind of thing. And pole vaulting, who would have thought? It's amazing. It just also feels like such a 90s old solution where it's like, let's just pole vault. Cool. And it's, it's so beautiful when they're pole vaulting. I don't know. I, I, know, I just thought it was great. The shot of the three of them pole vaulting in unison is like yeah, a great exactly. shot. I was expecting to hear like, bum boy. Like that, that yeah. song. Like, it, it looks really fun. Like Indeed, they're having a good time. I also think the beautiful thing about this is it's, it's the floor is lava. Yeah. Like it's this floor game that everyone plays when they're kids that's so universally recognized. We need to get from where we are to that truck over there, and we can't touch the ground. Yep. Another great character moment, those little character moments that make the movie shine, is when she busts through the window and gets the ignition and gets the gas, and they're going, and Val and... What's his name? Is it the other guy? Uh, Val and Earl start, like, high-fiving... <laughs> And she's like, hey, can you help me? Like, I'm dangling my legs out of the back of the truck, and I have my hand on the accelerator, and there's no one in the driver's seat. And they're like, oh, yeah, right, right, right. Like, it's just those little moments that make you laugh and yeah. make you fall more in love with these characters that that just help the movie elevate. You said earlier that, you know, the movie sort of makes fun of these guys, and it does. They're idiots. But it, the movie also loves them, and we love them. Yeah, we, and it's because of little things like that. And so... At this point, it's sort of the halfway mark of the movie, and there's been a lot of great, like you were saying earlier, a lot of great setup Right. that is now all going, it's just a series of setup, 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 all going to pay off now. Now everything is set in motion. We know the stakes. We know what these things can do. We know all of our characters. We know their little quirks. We know the little environmental quirks that eventually become problems. Right. So it's just sort of a master class in, in plant payoff. Writing. And we get this extended sequence with the Graboids attacking the village. Yeah. Everyone winds up at the village except for the Gummers, who are out on patrol. And all of our other characters are congregated together in Chang's shop. Um, we get an attack on the shop. We get them all splitting up and climbing up onto their separate... Uh, onto their separate buildings and we get... I want to talk about the Chang attack one more, just really quick. Sure. Just That was the best scare moment in the movie. Just when that thing just comes through the floor of uh, the stakes just keep getting upped. And it's crazy when it comes through the, the ice machine goes off, they're freaking out. They shut it off and there's like a quick moment of silence and then boom, it's in there and it's just total chaos. It's insane. The, the level of chaos that happens. And the ice machine's another great thing that was set up right at the very yeah, beginning. Exactly. I gotta say though, that one was a little bit harder to track. Like I didn't remember that setup as well. Sure. But again, it's the kind of thing that rewards watching the movie again. Sure. Like you said, you've seen this movie a million times. So there's more to it than just the first time that you see it. It's You see it over and over and you start to appreciate those little things. Definitely. And just also, Kevin Bacon is just like Richard Gere. He's amazing when he's yelling. Maybe I just like people yelling. <laughs> but he's so good when he's just screaming his head off and freaking out and just dealing with... He's so committed. Yeah, he's, he's great when he's just freaking. He's great in other moments, too. Those moments where he's just got, when he's upset about stuff, or also when he's victorious. In this one, it's when Chang gets killed. He just looks 
almost straight at the camera. And he's like, no, like it's just another great, just go for it. Yell, scream. And he does it. And it's great. Uh, I also want to mention in Chang's store, heavy Pepsi presence. Yep. There's a lot of Pepsi yep. and I got to imagine they cut a deal. Uh, no, it's because, you know, Chang's, he's, he, he likes to make a deal. He's a frugal guy. Coke was too expensive. Yeah, there you go. Replace Chang with the studio. <laughs> uh, and you got a good factoid there. Um, yeah, so this is, there's a whole series of, of, of small set pieces here. Rhonda getting caught in the barbed wire. Chang getting eaten. Uh, whew, one of the other the guys. The kid almost getting eaten. The kid almost getting eaten. Who's, who's, what's the guy? Um the other guy. Nestor. Yeah, the Nestor least. getting eaten uh, off his yeah. trailer when they flip the trailer. That's messed up. A lot of them yeah, so many messed up kills. The rescue of the girl on the pogo stick. Yep. I love the pogo stick because as soon as you see it in the opening of the movie, you're like, that's going to be a problem later. <laughs> yeah. And then obviously the the best scene in the movie. Let's be honest. The attack on, on. on the gummers. The attack on the gummers. That is amazing. It's, it, it, it's it's like a, almost like a surrealist joke. The amount of bullets they shoot into this thing over the, the amount of guns of the on the wall. I I counted the guns. Do you want to take a guess on how many guns are on the wall? You count you, you freeze framed it and counted I the guns. Well, okay. I I want to give a quick shout out to the imfdb.org, which is the Internet Movie Firearms Database. <laughs> a very very comprehensive gathering of all firearms featured in all movies really interesting and also really good screen caps clearly someone is screen capping 1080p blu-rays of all these movies and is really obsessed with guns it's that gun uh, lobby man they're they're well financed yeah i wouldn't be surprised if it's them doing it they're like we need a database of all the guns so people are into okay. this you want me to guess but do you want to take a guess how many pennies are in the jar i'm gonna guess 35 there are 59 guns on the 59. wall. 59. Handguns, rifles, the Jesus, elephant gun. That poor prop. That poor prop. <laughs> and you can read all about them at IMFDB. Each one identified. That scene, though, it's so surreal and so over the top and such a great fake out when you think, oh, these classic hubris, they thought they were prepared, but guess what? They weren't. And just that moment where the, the pops start sounding off. And the faces of Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon are just like, what? <laughs> and then cut, cut to boom, 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 boom. Like just assault rifling. I know. The, the, the thing. Just it's every, so, everything so they go through. Every, every little, uh, you know, every gun that they switch out and they throw in mags to each other. But also the reactions of Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward on the roof lend so much to that scene. Because they are, do, they are us. They're going like, oh. No, another one. No. And then you hear the pop. They hear the pops and you could cover that scene where it's just they grab the guns and start shooting. Right. But instead, they're taking a, they're telling us how to feel and then also telling us how to react. Like, wait, what? And then that amazing reveal of the, them shooting and then pan to the gun wall is crazy. This is also one of the few times in the movie where we actually see a graboid and a human in the same shot. There's um, oh, some green green screen stuff here that works pretty well because it's it's like a little touch, but it, it helps again sort of sell the scale of these things. Yeah, yeah, and just how it it, it learned not to uh, to go through the wall, like it learned how to get through that bunker. Mm -hmm. But okay, I want to ask you a question. Yeah, in this scene, and this will apply to the rest of the movie. Do you think this is a pro-gun movie? I was going to ask you the same question. <laughs> it's I think it is. I think it's very pro-gun. 
This movie that's guns everywhere and guns save the day. Well, it's all about you should have a gun. Save the day. Guns too. Guns Guns absolutely save the day. So Uh, and it's all about just like you should have a gun because the Gummers become the face of the franchise. They sort of become the heroes by the time you know Tremors Five rolls around. It's hard to argue that the franchise as a whole isn't sort of in their in their their mind their headspace. Um, yeah, you know, isn't sort of and in any kind of disaster movie or monster movie is inherently sort of pro survivalist mentality anyway, because someone yeah. who's prepared for an absurd situation like this will. But this movie takes extra special care to fetishize weapons a little bit. I... There's a lot of call outs to like, do you want the Browning or do you want the cult? There's a lot of like, take this gun. And the kid's like, ooh, I get a gun. Like it goes a little bit extra beyond just like these are weapons that are meant to protect us it's like guns are cool and they can protect you and they're very useful in this type of situation so i i have a different take one this movie i mean pretty early on establishes itself as um having at least some western iconography yeah. we get our heroes on horseback we have a revolver we have a, a lot of and you know we're set out in the west we've got buttes and mesas and desert um, and so guns are an inherent part of Western iconography uh, of, of Western films. That's unavoidable. And a lot of Westerns are about our sort of complex relationship with violence, how violence shaped American civilization and all that stuff gloms onto this, you know, whether or not it's intentional or just sort of an aesthetic the movie wants to play in, uh, you could, you could debate, but yeah, I think that the movie doesn't, think the gummers are cool. I think the movie thinks they're silly. That is very true. Um, that is true. And it all does... those lines where they're like, which gun do you want? The, I think it's a joke. You know, they're okay. so matter of fact. It's like them talking about, you know, like what brand of potato chips they want to buy. But the fact that they're talking about guns makes them absurd. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, so, that is true. So it's certainly, you know, it, it, here, it, it, it idolizes guns in the way that, you know, any western or action movie tends to but it doesn't think that like owning 59 guns is a cool thing (laughs) i don't know man it got them out of a jam they were able to just keep grabbing another gun (laughs) but here's the thing though that elephant gun that elephant gun that elephant gun yeah they they um custom made those cartridges uh out of solid brass oh okay uh and they look terrifying but also yeah i i I learned some fun facts on the IMFDB. Uh, <laughs> they dropped the elephant gun on set and broke it. Oh, shit. Because that was borrowed from someone's collection. Yeah, so they, they screwed up the elephant gun. And also, another crazy 1990 movie thing is that Reba has what we would now classify, or what some people would classify as an assault weapon. It's like a M16, yeah, M16 or whatever. Yeah. Before California put up a assault weapons ban, they were able to just go to a prop shop and grab that weapon and not have a special armorer on set who needs to be only in charge of the gun. Great. They had to have like a stunt coordinator, but now it's like you need a guy whose sole purpose is to handle those types of weapons that are extremely dangerous. But back then... Just go down to the prop shop, sign a waiver. You got your, you got your M16. Fantastic. That makes me feel so safe. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, now there's the armorer, so things have changed for the better uh, in terms of safety. 
So after the Gummer attack, we get our final town set piece, uh, where they set the the tractor, the lawnmower, uh, riding off into the uh, down the road, and Val makes a break for the big cat, the uh, 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 the treaded um, bulldozer with the yep. uh, flatbed trailer. And uh, this is like it's a good it's a good culmination of all the stuff that we've seen so far. It's a fun little set piece. Um, I like that Rhonda gets to save him. Yep. And she and does it by I also herself. just want to mention, yeah, that was cool. I wanted to mention the high-fiving and how they take, the, they, even that is a little plant payoff where they're like about to high-five or something, but he ends up like punching him in the face so that he can get the jump on right. sacrificing himself. And like, it's just the little things. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry I keep saying it, but no, those it's little true. things, they make you smile. Who's Who's got the lighter? You know, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. So I want to I want to mention this set piece here uh, because I think it's the last good set piece in the movie. I okay. actually think that from here on out the movie kind of sags a little bit. Yeah, everyone gathers together in the in this big old uh, uh, flatbed trailer that they're pulling behind this thing and they're trying to make a break for the mountains. Um, and I and at this point we have two graboids left because um, the gummers have killed one and one ran into the aqueduct and died and. The movie doesn't really seem to know how to turn this into a climax. It just sort of yeah, continues. It's true. Well, there's a bit of a climax with the final the final run right. of I got one pipe bomb left. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't build. And I think part of that is because they s- stop killing characters off. I think that that sure. kind of lessens it. And let's be honest, there were a few expendable characters at that point. <laughs> I know it's at, not cool you, to Melvin. kill to kill children, but come on, let's let's if you can't kill him, make him five years older, make him a stoner, and just kill him off. So he was terrible. So the story with that character is kind of fun, Melvin, the, the annoying teenager, which is that people always thought that like he was related to Nestor, the guy who dies on top of the trailer, because he has that super extreme reaction when uh, okay. Nestor dies. Um, yeah. But the writers got on record and said the way he thought of the character was he was a kid whose parents were just always off in Vegas gambling and they just left him oh, alone. And that's I why see. he's kind of a turd. The, the very, very fine details I know, of the it's tremors. Not really explained in the movie, but I think it's a fun little backstory for him. Um, okay. But you're right. He well, should, I he think should he, should, he deserved to die. <laughs> he deserved <laughs> Specifically after he was handed the weapon. I think that was when he should have gone down. So I think what the, what the movie struggles with here is creating a sense of build it's been doing it such a good job of that until this point but then you know they get into the tractor and the next thing that happens is the tractor crashes yeah they build build a little divot in the road to stop it now that shot is pretty sweet of the stuntman jumping off the front of the uh the bulldozer as it's tipping into the ground yeah that was cool and then they're back on the rocks it kind of yeah you get back to the rocks and they're like we can't pull vault out of here and like yeah it, it gets a little saggy i i totally agree if there's anything else you want to say before the final climax i have a gripe no go ahead the cliff setup i had forgotten right i i didn't even remember i didn't remember that there was a cliff and i didn't know there i didn't even know that there was a cliff i didn't know they were near the cliff the movie did a very bad job of establishing that cliff and it led me down a path where when that happened, I felt a little bit like, what? Like <laughs> Deus Ex cliff. that just happened? Yeah, it was a total Deus Ex Machina for me. And I think I, I, 
I'm sure if I watched the movie again and saw that cliff and maybe they, they clue you in, but as somebody who was watching the movie, I wasn't on my iPhone. I wasn't talking. I was watching the movie and I didn't get that. I think and I'm sorry, but that's on the movie. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the reason is that that cliff doesn't exist. It's a matte painting. So that, and they didn't but even, really have... even if, Oh, the cliff is right over there. The yeah. cliff is 20 feet away. What are we going to do? We can't run that way. There's the cliff. They definitely I, need they something like it, that. They did a not single shot underline it of like when yeah. they're on the rocks and they're looking around for an escape, and it's like, well, we can't go back the way we came because it's too far. The mountains are ahead, but there's a big bunch of open ground. There's the cliff over there. That would all help because yeah. what it does ultimately is it really undercuts Val's victory, which is that oh, he's well, finally come up with a plan because we don't realize. Which again, he's come I didn't up with get. I thought it was just a fluke. Yeah, I thought it. I was like, oh, his plan sucked. He he missed. <laughs> So they just didn't do a good job of those different elements where he he puts together that he can make it go off the cliff. And, you know, it kind of was like such a good, long experience. And then it was just like in the last moment, it's like coming off the it's not sticking the landing a little bit. That said, the shot of the Graboid falling and splatting on the ground. Well, Wonderful. Chef's kiss. Yeah. If they had just taken 30 seconds to establish what the hell is going on, I, I it would have been great. It would have been gangbusters. But... I was I was sitting there like what okay uh, I mean it wasn't like when it went out of the cliff I didn't know what was going on but it was like a twenty second thing right. where I was like oh now they're on the edge of a cliff okay that makes things easier so How anyway that's that? my big gripe but so that's the end of the movie I mean uh, Val and Rhonda make out Earl gets a couple other good reaction shots <laughs> yeah that's that's a, that's his character arc. He's just looking for that perfect reaction shot. The Gummers Tannelyn Baxter gets taken down. Tannelyn Baxter, famous country singer. Her uh, her portraits get taken out of the truck. Yep, 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 yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and you know, it just kind of is like the end. Good job. <laughs> I mean, it wraps no, up quick. No news I, reporters. I love a good movie that just gets out of its own way, and it's like movie's over. Why are we hanging around? Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, so this movie comes out. In, what was the date? January. 12th I think, or maybe end of january like 22nd i think it's end of january it is january yeah. 19th 1990 okay. and the movie bombs yeah uh, opening weekend of three million dollars on a 10 million dollar budget uh it not good not good um it not ultimately good grosses uh ultimate is uh, 16 million so barely makes its money back when you look at marketing probably didn't make its money back a bomb. Yeah, it's a fail. Yeah. It's a fail. But it has lived on in the cultural consciousness. Many sequels, people love this movie. And it's because of home video. I mean, this is a part, if we're going to talk about the year 1990, one of the things we have to talk about is the rise of home video. Yes. Well, prior to affordable technology allowing people to view movies at home, the only way a movie would be seen was in a theater. Yeah, and there's a few or if it was rerun on TV, like it would be a big deal yeah. if, if Gone with the Wind was playing on ABC. It would be like a three night event, Gone with the Wind, with commercials, and that was how a lot of people our parents' age saw a lot of those classic movies. But so yeah, you either had the theater or TV with commercials. Really expensive technology um, that was inefficient and inaccessible to most people. And we won't go into the whole history of home video, but the '90s is when you see studios begin to account for home video as part of the gross of a film. Um, a yeah. movie doesn't have to do well in theater if it can do well on VHS. And Tremors is one of those movies. I think mostly because 
the poster, which is a total Jaws ripoff, is a great poster. Great poster. I'm well, sure that was just the, the fact that the it, The fact that it just is like, let's just throw the creature design on there, but in a cool way. Even though that, cool, the thing on the poster doesn't look anything like the actual creatures. No, but I think that had a lot to do with the fact that I never watched this movie because I was scared to watch it. I was like, I don't want to see that thing. I don't know. I was a bit of a wimp, honestly, <laughs> growing up uh, in terms of horror movies. So that, like that cover for me was too scary. Um, I was like, I'd rather not. So it, yeah, it's a, it's a great cover. And I can see renting this movie and being like, ah, it looks like, you know, Kevin Bacon, whatever. And then watching it and be like, that was great. I'm going to rewind and watch it again before I return it. And it's just catching on. According to the LA Times, it was one of the most rented films of the year 1990. Oh, there you like, go. Like this was this it was huge, and I think the reason why is that when it got good word of mouth, you know, people were seeing it and being like, "Hey, this movie's actually pretty good. It looks fun, and it's a lot of fun." And even when it came out, although it didn't get uh, great reviews from critics, there were a few critics, including Roger Ebert, who were like, "No, there's, there's stuff going on here. You guys might want to check this one out." Um, yeah. he gave it three and a half out of four stars. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Roger Ebert really respects craft. No matter like, what the, form it takes. No matter what form it takes. And like, here's a movie that's all craft. So there you go. Is there anything that you want to say about the year 1990 and this movie? Does it, you know, we've talked a little bit about some themes that have developed. Now, this movie obviously doesn't quite have the same aspirations as some of the other films that we've covered. Yeah. But is there any way to see how this fits into some of the narratives that we're looking at? Your point about home videos is a really good one. Like, if I had to take anything away from all of this, that would be a really important element of the culture. And I guess also just, just the general level that a movie like this is crafted, I feel like has changed so much in the past 30 years. And I hate to be a snob or a film buff, annoying jerk about the mod the state of modern cinema, because there's lots of great movies still being made, sure. but like you just, it's hard to come by something like this nowadays that just feels like it was, crafted from the ground up by like a team of professionals that really care about what they're doing and care about stuff like plant payoff, care about stuff like the creature design, care about those little acting moments. You just, I don't know, especially at this level, right? Like this doesn't feel like a rushed product. It doesn't feel cynical. It doesn't feel like anyone compromised it at any point in its production. And it's really valuable. Yeah. And some ways something like this is the last hurrah for like, the practical creature feature Jurassic Park's coming out in a few years and it's going to introduce CGI and that's going to change the way these movies are made to talk about Jurassic Park for a minute. It's just so funny that like one of the best uses of CGI was the first, like usually the, the prototype is sure. bad, but may, who knows? Yeah. Maybe that just changed the way everyone thought they're like, Oh, we'll just make another Jurassic Park. And it's like, uh, they worked on this really hard, guys. Like, <laughs> they not, the it can't always be Jurassic Park. Oh, I think the equivalent of Tremors today is something like, you know, a low-budget Blumhouse movie, um, where, you know, a, a, an aspiring special effects company back then meant somebody who would make you a giant rubber slug full of orange goo, and today it means somebody who can make, you know, a, a character's face turn into a creepy smile. Right, yeah, exactly. And so exactly. The, the character of the movies change, too, so this is, I mean, the movie has a kind of wistful sense of nostalgia. Perfection is a backwards kind of place, but it's charming in its backwardsness. 
The movie likes westerns, you know, it likes war movies, it, it, it likes old monster movies, and it, and it kind of wants to live in a time that's quickly being forgotten by the time this movie comes out. 1990 is a lot about transition, and I think Tremors, in a lot of ways, is about looking back, about resisting that transition, about holding on for, you know, 90 more minutes to the things that we loved when we were kids. Yeah, something I just thought of, too, is that tradition of filmmakers being influenced by what they saw when they were younger. And like, this is obviously influenced by like those B movies from the six, the fifties and sixties. And yeah, it's just different than what people are influenced by today. Like, I don't know. It's, I think it changes the way that movies are made and the movies are thought about. And the cinema is always in conversation with itself. Yeah, exactly. But now the people making movies, we're watching tremors. And and on that that pretentious note, (laughs) so yeah no great movie i'm glad i finally watched it and yeah solid recommend to anyone that's never seen it i don't know why you would have listened this far into the podcast if you haven't you must have (laughs) oh a lot of things going on you know we cover most of the movie anyway you don't really have to see it we'll we'll just describe it yeah exactly uh but yeah this was great great um so next up, we have Mountains of the Moon. Mountains of the Moon with a special guest joining us. Um, a movie yeah. I've never seen. I'm excited to watch it. And uh, we've got, we just sort of ironed out the rest of our schedule. We've got a great lineup of movies coming up. So stay tuned. By the way, if you've made it this far, just so you know, Tremors is on Netflix. It's on Netflix. We should probably say that at the beginning of the episode. Oh, that's a really so good idea. <laughs> if people are like, oh, I'll watch the movie before I listen, yeah, they, I'll just, they know I'll where to find it. I'll just cut and paste this awkwardly at the front of the episode. <laughs> Without context. Hey guys, Tremors is on Netflix. Just so you know, if they, okay, here's the theme song. Uh, yeah, so we'll talk about Mountains of the Moon in a few days, and it'll be awesome. All right, so for Back to the Movies, this is Ben. And this is Nat. Signing off. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.